out of love for us, out of love for every one of us, every one of us in this room. And then there's God the Son. God the Son came to earth at a point in time in history and took on human flesh. And he went to the cross and he bore our sins on his shoulder. It's called imputation. Our sins were imputed to him. They were put on his shoulders and he died for our sins. He took our sins upon him and died and took the penalty for our sins himself. And I don't want you to think that that's a get out of jail free card. We're sinners. The penalty for our sin is death. And this is a legal transaction. This process of salvation, this process of regeneration. This is a legal transaction wherein Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And he not only paid the penalty for our sins, but after that, his righteousness was then imputed to us. So that now when God looks at us, he no longer sees us as sinful human beings, but he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians, Paul says in Second Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. It's the Holy Spirit who applies this salvation to our life. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of who we are, that we are sinners, to the truth of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit mediates a process called regeneration in which we become new creations. We receive a new heart. If you look at this passage in Ezekiel, it says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And this imagery is really meaningful to me as a former pediatric cardiac surgeon. My job for 30 years was to do my best to treat patients who were born with structural heart disease. And for the most part, most of those children could undergo some kind of reconstructive surgery to repair their heart defect. They had a hole in the heart, I could close it with a patch. If they had a narrow vessel, I could widen it. But there were some children whose heart defects were so incredibly severe that they were fatal, that without something very drastic, there was nothing that could be done for them whatsoever. And they were affected by something called failure to thrive. They had to work tremendously hard just to breathe. They were working so hard to breathe that they couldn't eat, they couldn't gain weight. And that analogy is very apropos for us as sinners. We have a sinful heart, and our sinful heart doesn't allow us to thrive. We, are, we have turned away from God, and we are moving away from him. Now, in, this, in the case of these children who have these irreparable heart defects, the only thing that can be done for them is a heart transplant. We actually remove their old diseased heart 
and we replace their old diseased heart with a new heart, a new, young, vigorous heart. And it's just amazing to see a child after a heart transplant, to see how that they wake up from their anesthesia, the breathing tube is removed, and they breathe, for the first time in their life, they breathe gracefully. They don't spend all their calories trying to, trying to breathe, and they can eat gracefully, and they can gain weight, and they can thrive. And just as they begin to thrive after their heart transplant, so we, when we are made into new creations by the Holy Spirit, can thrive. Our hearts are turned toward God. And after regeneration, we experience an overwhelming sense of gratitude. And as a result, we have a desire to serve him. We have a desire to obey him. And we have a desire to grow spiritually. And that's what we're talking about today. So that's the reason we want to grow spiritually. It's because God first loved us, and it's out of gratitude to him for this gift of salvation. So what is spiritual growth? As simply as I can put it, it's the process whereby spiritual maturity is gradually developed by believers. The process whereby spiritual maturity is gradually developed by believers, and this process should start from the point at which we are redeemed and should carry on for our entire life until the day we die. And this process is fueled by a grateful heart because of a God who loved us first, and sent his only son to die in our place on the cross. Now the question is, is there any, is there any uh, validation for this process of spiritual growth in Scripture? Sure there is. Peter says, Peter commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Also, the author of the Hebrews says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. And let us go on to maturity. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is not something that we do ourselves. Salvation is not, of God, is, is not something that we do. Ephesians, the first chapter of this, or the first part of this passage from Ephesians says, for it is By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not by works. So no one can boast. But what does it say after that? It talks about what the Holy Spirit does. It says, for we are his workmanship. We are new creatures. We are creatures. We are created in Christ Jesus. And what are we created for? We're created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And one of those good works that we want to talk about today is spiritual growth. The author of Philippians uh, says that, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now not only in my presence but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Of course, God helps us in this process of spiritual growth, but this is something that we must put our minds to doing. 
in response to the love, the gift of salvation that God has given to us. We must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This working out of our salvation with fear and trembling, again, is an outgrowth. It's an outgrowth of the gift of salvation that Christ has given to us. So I tried to put together just a very simple outline of how we might practically approach this process of spiritual growth. And there are three major components. The one that we're going to talk about really today is worship. But there are three major components, worship, fellowship, and service. And when we talk about worship, we're going to talk about two kinds. They're very similar in many respects, but then again, there are also some differences as well. We're going to talk about corporate worship, which if you were to force me to put rank in order of importance, I think is the most important means by which we grow spiritually. And there's private worship. We will mention fellowship and service at the end, but there won't be enough time to go into that in any, in any detail. Well, where does this word corporate come from? It comes from a Latin root, corpus, which is, it means body. Corporate worship, quite simply, is when each one of us in Community Bible Church comes together, like we're doing right now, and we worship our Lord together. As a body, we worship our Lord. Recently, Catherine and I went to a conference solely dedicated to worship. And one of the things that one of the speakers said that was particularly meaningful to me was that when we come to worship together as a body, we come to meet God. And God does come and meets us in that corporate worship. It is a promise in Matthew 18, verse 20, that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I among there I am I among them. Can you imagine? And I'll say this many times today, the God of the universe, that above which there is nothing greater, we have the opportunity to come together and meet him, and he promises that when we do that, as we are doing today, that he will meet us. What should our attitude be when we worship? together as a body. Well, first of all, I want to just say that corporate worship is something that's outward. We shouldn't come to corporate worship just thinking, what am I going to get out of this? Again, God is that above which there is nothing greater. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the the great and sovereign God. He is outside time and space. Our minuscule minds can't even begin, can't even begin to imagine what God is like. And so what we do when we come to worship together corporately is we come to give him the praise and to give him the honor and the glory that he deserves. We come to bless his name And that's a joyful thing. In Psalm 122, it says, I was glad when they said unto me, 
Let us go into the house of the Lord. Not only that, but corporate worship, it's a command in Scripture. The writer in Hebrews said, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some as is the habit of some, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So corporate worship is something for which we need to show up. We need to come. We need to be here. Now, you might think that I'm making too much of a big deal about this, that I'm neglecting the fact that there's live streaming, that there's Google, that there's YouTube. Goodness, there's Wikipedia and the source of all knowledge. But, but that's, and, and there is a place, we should take those things captive for Christ. And there is a place for those things. There is a place for those things when we're dealing with a pandemic. There's a place for those things when there are those who are sick or those who are elderly and shut in and, come, and can't come. There is a place for those things. But if we are able, we all need to show up. We need to be here for corporate worship. Another thing that I want to emphasize is the importance of each one of you in corporate worship. This may be a little bit difficult to see, but God says, the I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the hand of the feet, I have no need of you. Every one of you is an essential part of the body of Christ. And again, we need to show up to be together, to worship together. Another thing, look at the bottom line. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We suffer together. We rejoice together. We do everything together. There are other things that happen in corporate worship. Peter talks about service. As each one received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, talks about teaching and admonishing one another. We need to take this seriously. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, just like we were doing earlier, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Now, not only does corporate worship have a wonderful effect on each one of us who participate in it, but it also has a positive effect on any unbelievers who might be here among us. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, 
He will worship God and he will declare that God is really among you. When we worship together corporately, we have an effect not only on those of us who are believers who participate, but also on unbelievers. Now, we need to take this to a a more practical level, and that's what I want to do. And so we're going to talk about corporate worship and private worship. And this, this is just to show you the similarities of the two. There, in corporate worship, there is the ministry of praise, the ministry of the word, preaching, what we're doing right now, the ministry of prayer, and the same in private worship. And there's one difference between the two, and that is most of the time we will uh, celebrate the sacraments, which is baptism and holy communion in corporate worship. But let's just consider very briefly the ministry of praise and ministry of the word, and then we're going to talk quite a bit about private worship and some very practical things that perhaps may be helpful to you. Psalm 69 says, I will praise the name of a God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. That's what we were doing earlier before I started preaching. When we sing praises to God, we give him the honor that's due to his name. Like I said before, corporate worship is something, any kind of worship is something that is an outward effort on our part. But there is a reciprocal effect that when we do worship God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, that reciprocal effect is that that praise also comes back and lifts our spirits up as well. Right now, we're pract- we are exercising the ministry of the word. And we ought to think about what that is. God can speak to us through his word. The Holy Spirit does several things. It can, it can explain the word, illuminate it, shed light on the word so that we understand it better. We can be exhorted by the Holy Spirit through the word. The Holy Spirit can comfort us through God's word. And very importantly, the Holy Spirit can also convict us. Now, something that I found very meaningful was a quote from someone named Mark Deaver in his book called The Church. And he said, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local local congregations make the gospel visible. What he means by that is we can proclaim the gospel message now just as, as I'm doing, and And you'll hear that. It's audible. But when people see us meet together, live together, fellowship together, serve one another, share in in, in each other's sufferings and share in each other's praises, when we live together in a local congregation, we not only make the gospel audible, but people can see the gospel. We make it visible. So before we go to private worship, let's just review very briefly. Corporate worship, it's a prescription, to use a medical term, a prescription from Scripture. We need to show up. 
We're all necessary members of the church. Every single one of us need to be here because every single one of us is important. We have the opportunity to hear God's word preached. We have the opportunity to pray. We have the opportunity to sing praises and we have the opportunity to share in the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion. And not only that, not only does it confer benefits to us, but it's also ministers to unbelievers. And when we come together as we are today, we make the church of Jesus Christ visible to the world. So let's move on to private worship. And I I just want to repeat that the purpose of this is not to advertise this book. I'm just giving you a report on my early New Year's resolution, and it's my hope and prayer that you will find something somewhere along the line that's useful about what I say concerning private worship, private devotions, etc. Now, is there an example in Scripture of private devotions? There are plenty of examples. In the Old Testament, there's Daniel. In the Old Testament, there's David. In the New Testament, there's Peter. And let's just look at Jesus' own example in Matthew 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And remember Daniel's example, that he went to a private place, got down on his knees three times a day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. That was obviously a habit with Daniel to come before God regularly, every single day, and in his case, three times a day. Now, just some general comments about our own private devotions, our own quiet time. And these things are not laws. They're just some things to think about. How often should we do it? Well, if we want to know someone better, then we want to meet with them frequently. And so we want to have our own private devotions to the best of our ability every day. How important is our own private devotions. Well, we want to make them a priority of the day if we can. But if you've ever been a pediatric cardiac surgeon, if you've ever been a farmer, if you've ever been a mother with kids, that can be pretty hard sometimes. But ideally, we would like to try to, before the, before the, the cares and concerns of the day crowd in on us, We'd like to try to get in our time with the Lord. But remember, that's not going to be able to, that's not going to happen every day. And Satan's going to be right there at your shoulder when you fail to do it. And he's going to be saying, Look, you're tired. Thursday night football is on. Um, You know, just forget about this. You're not going to get anything out of it if you do it tonight. So just let it go. The point is to be consistent. Go ahead. Do it anyway. No, you may not get as much out of it, but do it anyway. How long? Well, that's going to be different for everybody. When we exercise physically, what do we do? 
We start with short periods of time and we gradually build up. And as we develop a habit of personal spiritual growth, of our own personal quiet time, of private worship as we're talking about now, we can start small and we can build up. A quiet and secluded spot is ideal, but... Again, if you're a mother with small children, good luck. Now, something I hadn't really thought about much at all before I started applying this particular tool to my own personal devotions are some of these points that I'm about to talk about. I would pick up my Bible pretty regularly and read a a pretty regular... um, schedule of reading and get a lot out of it, but I never quite stopped to think about the fact that what I was doing was worship. And so when we talk about practically how to do that, I'm going to show you how we can focus on our own private devotions as worship. I didn't really approach it, I don't think, with the reverence that was due to it. Now, some of us have a quiet time, and I think that's great, a quiet, peaceful time with the Lord. But one thing you could think about is to try a not-so-quiet, quiet time. And you could try to speak your praises to God in your own personal devotions aloud. Go to a private place, say your prayers aloud, read the scripture aloud, just try it. It, it, it tends to galvanize the mind. It tends to capture your attention. It tends to force you to take things at a pace that makes it easier to comprehend, easier to internalize. It's not the only way to do it, but give it a try. I think we should approach our personal devotions with energy and enthusiasm. Again, just as the psalmist says, I will be glad when I go in to worship the Lord. And finally, now this is the pediatric cardiac surgeon of me, but I really think we should be organized in our personal devotions. I don't mean it should be boring. I don't mean that we should be saying the same thing every day. I just mean I think we should be organized so that, well, you'll see in a second why I think we should be organized. It It sort of helps to... It sort of helps to uh, emphasize the point that we're worshiping, that we're coming before a holy God, and we're giving him the honor that's due to his name. So how is this particular tool, and there are others, but how is this particular tool set up? Well, they have 31 different private worship services, one for each day of the month, And each one is organized the same way, although each of these nine points is different in each service each day. And we're going to go through each one of these here very briefly, but I want to just point out to you the the order and type of prayers. You might recall that a very common Christian mnemonic is ACTS, like the book of ACTS, A-C-T-S. And it's, a, it's an excellent guide to how we should pray. When we pray, we adore. A for adoration. 
When we pray, we should confess our sins. C for confession. When we pray, we should give God thanksgiving. And we should raise up to him our supplications. And there's a reason for this order, too. Because as important as our own personal needs are, as important as the needs of others are, we should adore him first. We should confess our sins to him first. And that prepares us to give him thanksgiving and to pray our prayers of supplication. So what would be an example of a call to worship? Before I start on these component points and go over them very briefly, I should say this. There are those uh, like me who can appreciate some prepared prayers and things like that, but all of these things can come from your own heart. They can come from prepared prayers of ancient saints, from Puritans, from John MacArthur, from uh, heroes of the Reformation, There are so many resources that we can use to teach us how to turn our hearts in prayer to the Lord. This is just one example of using Scripture as a call to worship, as a call to saying, okay, these are my private devotions with God. I'm going to consider this a time when I'm not just reading Scripture, but I'm worshiping God. Psalm 92 says, it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. So in this particular tool, it's followed by a prayer of adoration. Remember the mnemonic acts. Again, you can use scripture, a prepared prayer, something from your heart. It's fine. In this particular case from St. Augustine, Great are you, O Lord, greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and of your wisdom there is no end. And man, being a part of your creation, desires to praise you. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. These two things call us to worship and prepare our hearts to come before the Lord, to make it something more than just sitting down and reading our Bible. That's followed by a prayer of confession. Now again, there are some things I think that lend themselves more to spontaneous prayers from our own heart. And this is one of those things because we all have sins for which we need to ask God for uh, forgiveness. However, prepared things can sometimes be excellent schoolmasters to teach us how to pray. So a combination of the two can be very helpful. This particular one says, have, from Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your just judgment. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and give me and renew in me a right spirit within me. And following that with your own heartfelt confession of sin, after that introduction would be a very meaningful way to approach a prayer of, of confession. But again, each day, each of the 31 days is different, so it doesn't become rote, it doesn't become stale, it doesn't become boring. Now, this is something that I never did in my own personal devotions, and I found this to be very meaningful. At this point, uh, they advocate talking about a creed. And there are a number of really solid orthodox creeds that we can depend on. And the point of this is to just, in our personal devotions, to review the fundamentals of our faith, to review the things that aren't negotiable, and to remind ourselves what they are. The Apostles' Creed is a brief, easily understood creed, the Nicene Creed. The Athanasian Creed is also one that's used in this particular book. It's a lot longer, a lot more complex, and they divide it into three parts so that each day they do a third of the Athanasian Creed so it's not overwhelming. Alternatively, one can use statement of faith from the church. The next component is a catechism question. And in this particular devotional, it uses the Westminster Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism and asks one or two questions. Again, these are questions that they ask about the fundamentals of our faith, except they're more detailed uh, treatments of that. One of the questions, for example, the, the first question of the Westminster conf, uh, Catechism is, what is, um, oh goodness, uh, it's, um, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, Usually when I would do my personal devotions, again, it would center around Scripture, which is, uh, I think, the core, should be the core of our personal devotions, along with prayer. But it never occurred to me, really, to regularly pray for help before I did that. And that's what a prayer of illumination is. It opens our hearts to the truth of God's Word, and it reveals it, it asks God to reveal himself to us through his word. It asks him to assist us in understanding his word. And it asks him to help us apply his word to our life. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. And we use the Book of Common Prayer quite often. And this is a beautiful prayer of illumination. Although it can come from your own heart. But this particular and blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word may, we may embrace, embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Next, 
we read scripture. And I think one of the important points is to try to be, to try to read scripture in a way that is organized. You don't have to do it necessarily from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament, but perhaps one book at a time. Try to do it in a way that uh, is orderly so that you can get the gist of a book of, a, of the Bible as well as its overall core structure and message as well as the details. So again, using an intentional reading plan. And the, for me, the length of, of the passage that you read should be something that promotes consistency. For some, there may be time for a lengthy reading. For others, what I'm doing presently is one chapter a day from the New Testament. Read at a speed at which you can really comprehend and ask questions and search for answers. You might look at your Bible study notes or at a commentary as you go along. And again, try reading aloud. It, it maximizes comprehension, really galvanizes your attention. Finally, a prayer of thanksgiving and supplication. In this particular guide, they combine those two. And the point I wanted to make here is this. I don't think Jesus wants us to come to him with a stiff upper lip. I think he wants to, us to come to him and speak to him and to tell him exactly how we feel. If we're joyful, tell him. If we're sad, tell him. If we're grieving, tell him. Just take Jesus, for example, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He fell down on his face. He fell down on his face and prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I, not as I will, but as you will. Figuratively, if not literally, we should fall down on our face before the Lord in prayer and give him thanksgiving for all the blessings with which he has blessed us. And we should keep track of our list of, of supplications Prayers for ourselves, prayers for others, prayers for the sick, prayers for our church, prayers for our country, so that each day we can bring those prayers before him. Finally, at the end of each day, and the only thing that is the same each day is the Lord's Prayer. And I think the reason for that is because Jesus himself said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So those are some practical ways that we might be able to approach our own private devotions, our own quiet time. You don't have to adopt all of this, 
but at least it may give you some ideas of how you might change what you're doing now to enhance not only your consistency, but the quality of what you're doing in your own personal devotions. Now, we are out of time now, and I just want to mention the fact that in Acts chapter 2, the disciples came devoted themselves to their apostles' teaching. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. When we fellowship with one another, it's another opportunity for spiritual growth. When we serve in the church, it's another opportunity for spiritual growth. When we fellowship, that often involves service, and when we are primarily doing an activity of service, it often involves fellowship because we're doing it together. And there are so many ways that we at the body here at Community Bible Church can fellowship with one another and experience spiritual growth through fellowship and service. You can go to, well, I think I'm going to start going to the women's breakfast, but (laughs) there are... Wonderful Bible studies, special events, Awana, the church service, um, Sunday school, junior church, nursery, groundskeeping, landscaping. We have uh, innumerable things done by the elected officers, by committees, prayer groups, music ministry, coffee ministry, food ministry. It, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. And that's a sermon in and of itself. So, again, I'm not here to uh, advertise this particular book. What I am, I'm not even here to ask you all to make a New Year's resolution like I did three and a half months ago. But what I am here to do is to encourage you in spiritual growth and to tell you that I love you. And my prayer for you is that for 2024, that we would worship together. That we would worship privately. That we would fellowship and that we would serve this church with all our heart, soul, and mind. So, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this time that we have to come together as the body of believers at Community Bible Church for the opportunity that we have to give you the praise that is due to your name and to the benefits that we enjoy because of that. Lord, as 2024 starts, we pray that we would be filled with such a sense of overwhelming gratitude to you for the gift of salvation that every single day we would strive to the best of our ability to grow in the knowledge, to grow in spiritual knowledge, to grow in grace, to grow in love for one another. And that we would bring through that honor and glory to your name. And I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.